0: Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and it's Thursday. What that means is we are joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey through the world of martial arts and and everything in between. My guest today was in the Marine Corps. He's a martial artist and author, a fight choreographer. He's been featured in numerous martial arts magazines, and he's also been involved in two of my all-time favorite martial arts movies, Bloodsport and Only the Strong. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Frank Dukes. How are you doing today, sir?
1: Very good. Thank you.
0: What we like to do with every guest, I want to go back to the beginning. I know, obviously, you know, a lot of people have, have heard of you and know kind of the story from the movie, but I want to know, you know, when you were a kid, what, what was that first experience with martial arts? What what led to you getting involved in martial arts and kind of where that first spark came from?
1: I think the first start came from just watching different TV shows as a, as a kid. And, you know, like Wild Wild West, Robert Conrad, he, he would do like some jiu-jitsu or and you, you just see, you know, Mission Impossible, all these different movies that were doing different things. I remember watching a James Cagney film when I was very young called Blood on the Sun and, and it was really the first time martial arts was ever portrayed in film. The film was done in like in black and white in the 1930s. Uh, and it was about, you know, us going to war with Japan. He plays a reporter who stumbles across these plans to invade the United States, etc. So it was a very interesting story. Actually, and actually at the never very end of the yeah, you know, the film, he's got a, a you know a martial arts fight and and uh, with throws and it went on for quite a while. That kind of hooked my interest. I'd go to the library, and the only books that existed in the library at that time was um, Bruce Tegner's uh, some books by Bruce Tegner on self defense, mm-hmm. and he was even a gee. He was he was in a in a you know, sweat outfit showing different maneuvers. I, uh, I remember being picked on remembering learning one of those techniques. And I actually, when a guy came to push me, I just used the same technique from the book and it worked. <laughs> and that was, that set me on my way to learn more.
0: You're actually my second guest who basically their first experience in using it was learning it from a Bruce Tegner book. That's actually awesome to know how effective that was learning it from a book. That's really impressive.
1: Yeah. And it, and, and it, it was, you know, And they were very basic. You know, the books were very basic in those days. But then so is people's understanding of fighting. It was either boxing or in my day when I grew up, if you used your legs, um, you were were considered a coward. You know, if you fought somebody and you kicked them. Okay. You know, totally different era. Definitely. It wasn't until I was in high school that that kind of perception changed with the movie Billy Jack, where he, he does some pretty amazing kicks. The actual person doing it was Bong Su Han, mm-hmm. uh, someone whose school I would go to and audit his classes and then copy what he was doing as a kid. And I was pretty much self-taught. I just didn't have the, the money to pay for lessons. My parents are Holocaust survivors. We didn't have family. We didn't, there was, you know, that survived, not too many. My brother, my father had a, had a sister and my mother had two sisters and they were, they were in Israel, you know. 10,000 miles away. So we were pretty much on our own. Okay.
0: So, the, And what was your first uh, experience then with actual instruction from somebody where you were able to learn from someone else other than being self-taught? That's a good question. I
1: think uh, that would be probably Vic Moore. Okay. I saw Vic Moore beat Bruce Lee in a test of speed in Long Beach Internationals. And of course, the way it's portrayed today, it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. But uh, he took me aside and actually, Bruce Lee took aside my friend, who was handicapped, severely handicapped, and you know, Lee gravitated to him because he had actually he showed him his leg was shorter than the other, and so that encouraged my friend, and they he taught him like a back fist, and then uh, Vic Moore taught me some maneuvers, and it was kind of fascinating to me, and I practiced those things for three years, and wow. ran into him. You know, at the Long Beach Invitational again, he beat Mike Stone, who was reportedly undefeated had 90 matches in a row. He went up against Vic. He Vic dropped him with a rich hand strike in a uh, sweep. At the same time, and, and that which is actually what a, was Mike's move. That was his like signature move. <laughs> dropped him with his own move, and I mean it was very quick. The match was very over very quick. Okay, Stone hit the floor very very violently and I think he dislocated his shoulder or the looks of it. Jim Harrison was there and Al put it in they wanted to fight Vic but uh, it was over. And then as he was leaving this the stadium, basically I ran into him and he's had this entourage around him called the Black Dragons. And the Black dragons you know basically made a possible for for Vic to compete in many places because a lot of times in those years you had segregation. And Vic, you know, they, these guys would hold their tournaments in whites-only hotels. And so the Black Dragons would kind of escort him into whites-only hotel and, and force people to fight him so he could, he could get his belts, move up. Wow. Okay. And that, of course, you know, led into a number of things. And so anyways, when I met uh, Vic, it was a very you know, short meeting. And I said something like, you, you know, that, that's prompted him to, um, you know, want to spar with me. And got him to show my three moves. And uh, basically from there, he, he found me a teacher. Okay.
0: And then what, uh, so what teacher did he find you? And, and was that somewhere? It
1: was kind of a roundabout way, but I ended up finding a guy named Jack Secchi, who was teaching at the YMCA. Okay. And then he later was teaching at the uh, Los Angeles Valley College. I trained with him, but for the most part, I still would walk home and from junior high and i go to Bill Ryosaki's school. And I would stand outside his window and I'd learn on the street there, and I want to make it clear that it wasn't i didn't I was sort of like one of those kids who would clean the windows you know mm-hmm. as if you were in a car whether you asked for it or not
0: <laughs> yeah you know
1: and I hope to get a tip I hope to get a tip mm-hmm. well that's kind of what I did with bill uh, I basically went to the Chinese restaurant next door, made a deal with them to clean their place. they'd let me have the supplies I clean his windows occasionally or whatever and he would lift up the blinds and he'd let me he'd let me watch you know classes and inside like there would sometimes be uh benny akitas i mean he was like a brown belt then mm-hmm. and i was watching him put on an arm bar it's just it's just interesting how i, I was also on the peripheral of the martial arts scene in los angeles which was the mecca for martial arts you know i'd go to chuck norris's school and you know try to look in and and study and, and these are the things that uh helped define me. You know, I I just basically started approaching it from a totally different point of view. I eventually met Tanaka Mm -hmm. who taught me the ninja arts, which is really more about uh, deception, how to use feints, how to cover and concealment, poisons, um, all the high concepts in martial arts, weapons. Uh, It didn't really do anything with hand to hand per se. There was some, but not, not, not much. And, uh, because that was the mission of, of, of "close quote a ninja," was which is I use the term loosely because the term was actually coined at the tw- at the beginning of the twentieth century, along with the term ninjutsu. That people are promoting it as like this four centuries old terminology and being, and, and it's a title and it's not a title; it's a job description, basically of of what a person is doing. Anybody could be a ninja, you know. it's just means spying. Okay. In essence, eavesdropping, gathering intelligence. So, and so about how old were you when
0: uh, you started training with Tanaka then?
1: I was was in my teens, early teens, 13, 14. And it continued till I was about 19. What Tanaka was great about is he taught me basically most martial arts are spoon fed their techniques. You know, it has to be done this way, and this is the way you do it, and you teach the next guy to do it exactly that way. that's the way you do it. Where with him, it was more of a process. It was more like teaching me how to fish as opposed to giving me fish every day.
0: Okay. So he taught more-
1: me how to look at techniques, how to break them down, what to look for. Where's the balance when you're watching someone? What, what's their foot position? Where are their hands positions? How are they are rotating their body? You know, These were the important things he was teaching me. So I could always learn from just watching all the other styles. And he knew what I was up to.
0: It was a little more customized, more to you specifically, so you'd know what would work best for you then.
1: Exactly, and I used a lot of Bruce Lee's philosophy. That's why we wear the, the blue gi, But Bruce Lee talks about you know adapting, being like water, and you know that's what, what the blue in our uniform stands for is that principle be like water, which actually comes from Miyamoto Musashi, right? Well, before Bruce Lee, but Bruce Lee popularized it. I, I and of course, I nice. give him credit for it because that's how I learned it. I learned it through him. Yeah. I wasn't reading Masashi at that time, but I, w- I was seeing his, some of his books pop up.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that's and why you had the blue. That's really cool that you, that's a nice way to honor him. Yeah. So that's kind of cool.
1: And actually, it was even so much my idea. It was my own. The blue gi was actually designed for me by my own students. Ah. It came from uh, Francisco Diaz-Garcia. Prior to that, I was wearing a white one. Okay. That was identical with the with the pads on the shoulders. Uh, that was designed by Enrique Flores, and it was to signify that as teachers we all carry a burden on our shoulders. You know, it's to remind the students that we carry a burden. You know, the weight's heavy on us.
0: Okay, and then at now, so you said till you were about nineteen. Is that when you joined the Marine Corps? Then,
1: yeah, I was nineteen. I, well, actually, it was even before that. When I was seventeen, and they actually came and recruited me. Okay. I took the APHES test, and I was basically being taught tradescraft after school. And then at 19, they said I ended up in the, in the Marine Corps Reserves, but I was really really being geared up to be a, an agent, a non-attributable agent. Okay. What, and they what started are, me at a very young age.
0: So huh? what, what are some of the martial arts instructions? What, what did you think of the martial arts instructions you got in the military? And I've heard a lot of different stories. Well, oh, I didn't get anything really in-
1: from the military. Oh, really? I got very little from the military. I mean, I got a lot of martial arts in terms of shooting skills, okay. bomb disposal, making bombs, grenades. You know, we can, you know poisons. I can go into some. You know, we can talk about some of that those things. Mm-hmm. But the majority of the hand to hand combat, I devised myself, and I and it comes from my own proprietary technology that propelled me ahead of everybody. Okay, and. I, you know, I I came to their attention because I was, you know, who I knew and who I was associated with. They wanted to infiltrate, you know, certain power factions in South America that would come to Kumite events. Here I am in the Black Dragons. My father's grandfathers were talking three generations in the intelligence gathering business. So we had contacts we can't believe. And it was just, you know, I was just a right candidate for that to become an asset. Uh, the reason they put me in the Marine Corps was so I could—I don't know—have some kind of control over me.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: And also, so I'd have a military bearing, uh, and I meet certain requirements, you know, that the Congress on the military, etc. But majority of anything I did, this my laugh. These people, you know, making a bit, trying to make a thing out of my military with, in regards to my intelligence career is. You know, I'm all private sector. I've said it in my book, The Secret Man. Unfortunately, uh, I had to fight with my publisher. And one of the reasons I got my rights back is they, I told them not to put on the cover. You know, he was uh, the C- he, he, he was the C- CIA's most valuable asset, I think. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. It was, uh, give me a second here. Okay. Uh, he, yeah, he was, he, he was a, uh, Yeah, the book jacket read, he was the CIA's finest covert operative. Well, I never, ever claimed to be in the CIA, a hard-carrying agent. Uh, One could make an argument that I was an asset, but I wasn't run by them. In fact, if you read my book, it's very specific that I was kept outside of any purview of any intelligence agency because there was major, major security leaks going on. And, you know, the agencies were compromised and that, and that they, they, we, the, the intelligence community at the highest levels protected itself is so that it had to go outside, outside itself and start something new that hadn't been penetrated. Nobody would have penetrated at that point. Okay. And that's what I was a part of. Cool.
0: And I, will I had de- 90
1: guys, in my channel and there's, I think four of us were left alive in 1996. Wow.
0: I will definitely put a link to your book and stuff out there. Cause I know that's, I, I need to reread it. I read it, uh, man, when I was a teenager. <laughs> I actually need. I, I yeah. need to reread it. I borrow I lent it out to someone and never got it back. So I actually need to get myself another copy. But, but yeah, I read it. Uh, I believe God. I was probably fourteen or fifteen, so early nineties when I read it. But I know I enjoyed it back then. So yeah so then what kind of you know i know you this is i don't really want to ask this because it's been you've told this story so many times but you know i, I definitely want to talk a little bit about the kumite obviously because that's a, a big part of your life sure just talking you know, a little bit about it what the, what the experience was like i, I know well,
1: I, for, for, for first thing people have to understand the kumite is not it's not comparable to a mixed martial art competition per se right with the exception i would say the very very early UFCs. Yeah. Okay. I know you kind you kind of, you kind of described original. it once
0: as more like the more like the uh like the 100 man kumite type thing where it's not really it's not a bracketed tournament. You're right. you know, fighting person after person after person. Yeah, yeah, that that makes more sense. So
1: Exactly. And if you read the article in Black Belt magazine, I've been saying that since 1980. It's not a secret. It's no changing my story. But other people to diminish me because they feel threatened by my accomplishments have gone out there and created media campaigns defaming me. And one of which their arguments is this so-called Kumite math problem that it would take thousands of people for me to win 60 matches at a tournament. Right. When all you need is 30 guys, you know, or 60 guys, no, 30, 30 guys and each one stepping to the left, you know, yep. you know, do it twice. I mean, and then make it a double elimination or triple elimination that yeah. You don't need that that many people once you understand what really kumite is about. It's really just about fighting a fresh guy every minute. And it's exhausting. It's a a test of endurance. It's it's held over three days for the simple reason that, you know, the first day you take some serious hits, but it's the second day when you start to feel them. And by the time you hit the third day and you're still competing, then that's when you really know what you're made of. And that, and it's all about being a test. It's it's really testing yourself, and uh, you see this in a lot of great boxers uh, who've never been tested, and then one day they get tested, and all of a sudden it's it spells the end of their career. Good mm-hmm. example is Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, pound for pound, he bulldozed through everybody. <laughs> yep. I mean, he he, there's nobody could could stand up to the guy, and so what he, he finally I forgot who he fought that did that, but and then all of a sudden, you saw a different side of Mike. You saw something come out. And, and to be fair to Mike Tyson, and you know, he had lost his trainer. Yeah, you know, so he, I could see that happening where he reverted back to maybe how he was as a kid, feeling that emptiness. Didn't he needed guidance? He wasn't getting it.
0: Yeah, Gus you know? was My, such a good part I, of I understand. His
1: life, the, so. Yeah, well, I understand why why things turned down for the guy. Right. I think he's one of the greatest fighters there to live. Oh, he's, I agree you know? completely. Yes, and. You know, people can say what they want about them, but they've never stepped in a ring. They've never been hit. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, like with me, most of my critics are... It's really interesting. Most of my critics, if you really look into them, they're substance abusers. They have very little going on for themselves in their home life and in life. And a lot of them suffer from mental illness. That's just the reality. Most of my fans, they're police officers I'd say the law enforcement, and military community, but they tried to distance me with the military community when all these fraudulent claims of I like, committing stolen valor were being bolstered all over the internet. Right, and no one's ever found me talking about saying I was a medal of honor winner or that outside of maybe Sheldon Lettich, who did it for his own personal gain, who was caught and exposed in my trial of Van Dam that he was stealing my intellectual property and basically making it his own. He was taking credit for my intellectual property contributions. He was he was doing whatever he could to slander my name and drive a wedge between me and Van Damme because Van Dam was his meal ticket. It's that simple. He was, he was really worried about that. And so I found myself, you know, um, with this guy saying, oh, uh, what was it? Letich is on there saying oh, that they took, everyone took my word for it. You know, there was no due diligence done. Well, Sheldon is first of all one of three writers. Second of all, due diligence is performed by him, although he was contractually obligated to perform his due diligence. So I guess he breached his contract, is what he's saying, or he's say and he was incompetent in what he's doing. But it's the legal team for Canon Films that performs due diligence. They're the ones I had to convince and uh, what what things were, and they and that based on their own investigation at the end of the movie, they put. Up all the the screen credits, right? You know, and you know they don't take that they don't take that lightly. I mean, you can shut down a whole movie for false advertising just based on that. They weren't about to do that or lose their investment. There were nobody was taking my word for it. I mean, these people make films all the time. Same thing with Harper Collins. When I was doing my book with Harper Collins, I had to sit there for a week with the office of Slade and Metcalf and whatever I couldn't prove up true in the book, it got cut. My book was, you know, originally over 450 pages. It got dwindled down to like 312. Oh wow! Okay, and unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that should have remained, it eventually took my voice out of the book. People will say, "Oh, this certain details." Like, if you read the disclaimer in the front of the book, it says certain places were changed, time places were changed. You know, so it might be speaking about me being uh, doing something in Iraq when in exact, when I could be somewhere else a different part of the world. You know what I mean? Right. And so that's kind of what went on there. So I'm curious um, what what, it,
0: what made mm-hmm. you, you know, in your martial arts career, what made you want to start teaching? That's something that's obviously become a big part of your life over the years. When did you first start teaching and, and you know what made you want to do it?
1: Well, teaching was a natural process. I mean it, it came out of first of all, it really came out of a need. Uh I wasn't intending to be a teacher. Okay. I was what had happened is my father. I was getting ready to go to medical school. Actually,
0: okay.
1: I was planning on being. A, I was planning on being a podiatrist and I'd taken. You know, I got. You know, I, I was saved my money for that. I was getting ready to do it, and there was a Friday night. I'll never forget it. I, I got a call. My father had a major heart attack. He's a breadwinner for the family, and I had to step up and take care of the family. And then Saturday, my girlfriend or, who I would later become my wife. She, she, when she realized I wasn't going to go to med school, her mother informs me that I can't be seeing her daughter anymore because her daughter's an investment. Oh, wow! And then, come Sunday, I was teaching just to make extra money at a place called Kung Fu San Su on Lancashire Boulevard with this guy named Chuck Corey. And Chuck decided he was going to try to grab all my students because I had built up quite a quite a following because I would teach on the weekends when he wasn't interested in teaching. And he he doesn't give me 24 hour notice. He just says, I'm not renting to you, you know, find a new place. It's like, what, why, you know, what's going on? And then of course, when my students showed up, he's trying to pitch him to go into his classes and how I'm not going to be there anymore. And I just turned around and I said, heck, what am I going to do here? And I've noticed within walking distance of my, my parents' home was this laundromat and behind the laundromat, were these buildings in the tucked away in the corner, little ice abandoned ice cream shop? It said Happy Days Ice Cream, and of course it, you know, it, it was for it was for lease. Probably one of the worst locations you could ever imagine, because hard to see from the street. But uh, I got the number down and I contacted the landlord. He saw I was a young guy, I had no business credit or anything. Maybe take a ride with him. Got to know me really nice. His name was Mister Montclaire old-fashioned Italian guy he said I believe in you kid I'm going to give you a shot and he let me rent the the premises and I had no mats I had nothing I mean it was just a it was an abandoned ice cream store wow uh, all I had is a wall brought my little metal desks from home put that in that was my desk bought a bunch of carpet installed it and then I even made my own mats I had gone down to the fashion or the yeah, the Fashion Mart or the Clothing Mart and found uh, rolls of vinyl. And I got carpet padding and doubled, you know, sewed it together. And I made my own big mat. And that's how I started. And God provides because all I had is a little sign, card, you know, a little blackboard sign. It was two by two feet. That's how big it was. Just two by two feet. Hung it up in the, in the window. And it said Duke's Ninjutsu. And I didn't even have a ladder to turn the Happy D's ice cream sign around. <laughs> but word got out that I was training and I had 43 students in the first week sign wow. up. Very cool.
0: Okay. So then thinking back to that, that first school and then, and when you were teaching on weekends to now, what do you think's changed mostly about your teaching style over the years?
1: Well, it's developed, you know, it, you know, I went from being a Kumite fighter and, and pressure testing all the techniques to working, you know different in different arenas um, having to adapt and and as more information made itself known to me I I, I just studied I'm, a, I'm a constantly learning new things perfecting new things that's what makes Duke's Rue so interesting because if you talk to one of my black belts who's been let's say trained with me 20 years ago he walks in today and he goes I can see the old stuff but it's new somehow it's new it's it's just it's just room way ahead okay. of what it used to be then. and that's because we're constantly evolving we're evolving with the times and that's that way we as a system will never be obsolete many martial art systems are obsolete because they don't evolve with the times or they're they're more of a form of exercise and physical recreation than they are for the purposes they were originally intended
0: okay so someone asked you then, if you had to describe what makes your style different than others to someone who maybe isn't familiar with a lot of styles of martial arts, what would make yours different?
1: My my style is based on the laws of combat. I actually sat down and identified My style is a martial science. We can keep reproducing the same result over and over again. It's it's There's many different ways to explain it, but it's based on certain principles and laws. And we approach it from almost a scientific point of view. Okay. where other systems it's more of an art, artsy point of view you know it's sort of like a difference the argument between an artisan and a craftsman uh, you know as a craftsman I know what I'm what materials I need I know what I need to do and I know that I can make that chair the same every time an artist he grabs some materials and he doesn't know at the end of the day whether it's going to be a chair a table or what as he works on it and that's what it's like in fighting I know if I use this repertoire of techniques I am going to produce this outcome a lot of guys go out there and and they're in their fighting situation and they just kind of wing it. And that's, that's a big difference. And ours aren't set techniques. I want to make that clear. That's another thing. A lot of systems have set techniques, but those techniques will not work. Uh, You see that happen in the UFC because it's, it's, there's too many variables to, to make them not work. So when you approach things from a science point of view and you keep following the science and you follow follow it from that standpoint. You you get the same reproducible results, or you can predict, you know, what your opponent's going to do before they do it, and be there to defeat them.
0: And do you have do you just the one school, or do you have actually branched schools? Have any of your former students branched out and have a school underneath you?
1: Well, the, mo- the only formal schools right now are in of Duke's. for formal schools of Duke's, through are in Mexico. Oh, okay, okay. One of the reasons is uh it becomes very hard to pressure test here in the united states without getting sued right and so they're they're mainly there i do have instructors who are teaching duke through Uh, they also teach other systems as well and it's you know they they they're certainly helpful but it's not duke's not purely duke that's what i need you to understand
0: yeah that makes sense so what led to Hollywood? I know I, I've heard about like the original, the black belt article or whatever, but is that what, what led you to Hollywood and just kind of a little bit about that and you know, how you ended up getting involved in Hollywood and, and also, you know, after helping with like blood sport and stuff, what made you want to step in front of the camera? Cause you've actually been in front of the camera and something like only the strong I mentioned and stuff like that. What made you want to take that shift also?
1: Well, first of all, I've never, I never wanted to be in in front of the camera okay (laughs) Uh, and only the strong the reason i was before the the camera is because we're going to do a fight scene with a hot welding torch and i was going to trust anybody to wield that uh with mark dacascos being around right Uh, it has to be done in a certain way so the actor doesn't get hurt hurt you know and also i had to throw it in a certain way so that the people around me didn't hear her because i have a you know car crash down on me in that movie right and it, it was, and it was a dangerous stunt. They just, they didn't really prepare for it. And, you know, I was going to have somebody else do something I, I couldn't do myself. So okay. I did it. Nice. You know, never wanted to be an actor. Never had a headshots, you know, contrary to some of what my haters have put out there, you know, again, like Sheldon let it sing. I, I wanted to be an actor in his movie firefight. It was the last thing I wanted to do. He kind of cajoled me into, into being in this small, short, that he and I produced it was to help uh, Sheldon become a director because he needed a reel. So we, I helped him organize a reel back in the day. Okay, and, and for those who don't know it, Sheldon Lettich is uh, you know he used to be my former writing partner. Uh, he he basically negotiated away from me the credits for the for Bloodsport. I was the first one to take it to a concrete form and a treatment. My uh, the contracts reflect that. It says that he acknowledges that they purchased the story from me that it's not his story and then he's a work for hire. And it, it's kind of a complicated situation, right? I don't want to make it convoluted, but basically what happened is he, he tends to put out this untruth and says that he came up with the story by riding around with me in his truck. And I told him this story about a secret event. And I, he, the way he paints it is not the way that I told him about it at all. Um, again, we were writing partners I told him about a Script I already had uh, property we could maybe rework. Anyways, we he had done the short firefight, uh, and I turned around and and uh, looking at it today, I'm I'm just I should have never done business with Sheldon because he showed his real colors when we were doing that film. I mean, he didn't have the contacts. I had all the contacts. I brought him the producers the, through me, uh, the camera people, the stunt people casting for the short, which he did with a guy named Jacob Bressler, who's produced maybe 80 films, I mean, in Hollywood. Jacob was just starting out at that time and he wanted a, a producer's credit. Sheldon promised him a producer's credit. And, and Jacob Bressler said he would defer his payment. And in the end, Sheldon comes back and says, well, I'm not going to let you be the producer. It's like, what do you mean you're not going to give me producing credit? I'm doing all this work. I've done it already. He says, well... I'm not going to let you do it. He says, well, then you need to pay me for my work. I'm deferring it for the credit. I'm not going to, you know, I want to get paid for my work and my casting services and everything else. And Sheldon refused to pay him. And I had to stop, you know, Jacob. And Jacob's the top kapot martial arts instructor in the United States today. Okay. One of the top Krav Maga people in the United States today. who's also one of my first black belts, And he was going to take a baseball bat to him. I'm not kidding. He was going to be. He was going to light him up. That's not what they do in the Middle East. You know, that's where he was from. He was straight from Israel. You didn't. You don't do that. Play those games with with people's wages or what they've done. Right. Use people like that. Right. And I ended up going in my own pocket and paying Jacob for something I really didn't need to pay him for. You understand?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He should have gotten his credit. I was very angry when I saw that with Sheldon. It's like, you know, why'd you do that, man? You know, and and he didn't have any. Offer any explanations for it until later, you know, it's because you know he was, again he credits help bring new business to you. And when we were doing Blood Sport, I mean, what happened with this film is basically he's editing Firefight. It's during Firefight he meets Mark DeSalle. Mark DeSalle uh is, explains to him he wants to do a movie on kickboxing, which he eventually does. It's called Kickboxer. And, he's, and Sheldon, being a writing partner me, knows nothing about martial arts, but he says, hey, I've got my writing partner. He's a you know martial artist. And he so, said, let us uh, write this kickboxing movie for you. And he says, sure, uh, let's go meet him. And so Sheldon arranges it. And Mark DeSalle comes into my studio with Sheldon. And he looks on the wall and he sees the article of myself in Blackout Magazine. and He goes, what's this? And then I start explaining what Kumite fighting was. And I told him about my script and I told him about different things and and he says, wow, that's, that's, that's far more interesting than doing some kind of kickboxer movie. This is really fascinating. He said, thank you. And he says, you know," and says, but um, you know, with Sheldon here, we're going to rewrite your script. We're going to do it fresh. I want, I want a fresh approach to it because what you've done has been seen around town. And when my, my script originally was called uh, Return of the Ninja. And the Return of the Ninja was because my instructor had won the event years earlier. They called him a ninja, per se. Okay. Say here I hear his legacy is returning that was the idea behind that title makes sense but at the same time around that same time all of a sudden I think it was 8081 film came out enter the ninja <laughs>
0: yep.
1: and because canon had to kind of use that uh return of the ninja would have been like people would mistake it for that film right so I changed the title to blood sport and I got the title blood sport from the fact that when I used to fight we, we all we were treated like dogs you know Mm-hmm. And dog fighting in England is called blood sport. That's what it's called. That's where I got the name from. So mm-hmm. I nicknamed it blood sport. I called it blood sport. I used to make fun uh make a Howard Cosell imitation, you know, say here we are at blood sport, you know, where everyone's going to, you know, every fighter gives a pint of blood. Are you willing to give some today, you know, and then walk <laughs> up to a guy you know, with a microphone. Are you willing to give some yeah, to the Red Cross here? And I just made fun of it. You know, it was it was a way of breaking the uh my fear i guess okay you know know, i was afraid man people say you know no i was i was afraid when i walked in that arena i didn't know what i was gonna expect and some people get seriously hurt when some people die in the ring the reason it was called the death matches is because what happened in those days is they used to fight us so so much that if a guy got a concussion they, did, they would just tell you suck it up and you'd be back in class fighting or you'd be back wow. you know competing the next week somewhere else right and what happened is especially in the Orient these guys would fight so much that you'd, you'd see a guy just get one hit and it was over he'd die right there in the ring in front of you
0: that's crazy and it was
1: and it became quite common because they were fighting fighters too quickly and, and that's where it got the nickname death matches. Okay. But it wasn't because they fought to the death per se. Right. Although there is some competitions that were like that. Uh, they used to fight on the, in Hong Kong on the rooftops. And if the betting was large enough, the loser had to would be thrown off the roof. And the reason for that was everybody knew that they weren't going to fix a fight because the loser loses big time. There's no recovery for him, no right. payout, no payday.
0: So with with your background and in, in like basically full contact, no rules fighting, and everything, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on the MMA and the UFC and kind of the impact that's had on martial arts over the past 25, 30 years?
1: I think Bloodsport inspired that entire generation. It wasn't for Bloodsport, you wouldn't have an MMA today. It became the model. Okay. That if you especially if you look at the very first UFCs. Style versus style. Uh, I, yep. Right. But the MMA today really is no different than what judo was. It's really not. Something new. People think it's new, but when Judo first debuted, it was a martial art. It had punching, and it had throwing, and it had everything in it that you see today. So it's just a natural progression. I believe human beings we evolve, we constantly evolve. That's why my art Buxu is an evolving art. It's not a stagnant art. Shotokan karate, stagnant art. It's based on its tradition. Some of the Ninjitsu arts, Bujinkan, they pride themselves on being doing things as you know that's four centuries old and sticking to it. So. But uh, a lot of the tenets of martial arts, I think, are lost. And that's, that's what's really missing. The etiquette and the ethics that are involved in martial arts. Today, you have two camps. You have a camp of real fighters or ethical human beings who train the old ways and honor the, almost like a code of chivalry. And then you have these others who are always looking outward. They're, in, they're really the antithesis of martial arts, yet they're the biggest faces of martial arts. They're raging in substance abuse. they, get, they are womanizers, they don't uh, they practice infidelities, pedophilia. They're basically deplorable human beings when you really stand back and take a look at them and how they treat people or how they live their lives, yet they're the stars, they're made the icons., no, and that makes no sense to me.
0: Okay, So I'm assuming then you're not really a fan then either,
1: so: No, I'm a fan of, of talent. okay. You know, I'm a fan of talent. i look at different people. Look, look at Mark Coleman. Okay. The guy was pound, pound, probably the best fighter of his time, but Mark unfortunately had a disease called alcoholism and it, and it took his career from him, but he's bounced back from that stronger and a better man from it. It's his martial training and his discipline that grounded him to do that. And so no man is without fault. No man on this planet is without sin. None of us. So it's, it's not for us to judge others and point this finger at them. It's, right. it's for us to come from a place of compassion. But if you're going to have people be the, the leaders of an industry, they should have their shit together, if you know what I mean. Right. They need to be an example to children. That's what made baseball great. Baseball was great on that, built on that idea. That's why the kids looked up to Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb. They idolized their baseball players in the 30s and 40s Mm -hmm. because the way they were presented, they presented in in a way of being of all the values that we cherish in in, in American society. And those are somehow like lost now. They're not even being taught. A guy who's really well-trained, who's who's accustomed to violence, he doesn't take his violence out on children and women. He will use that to protect them. It's the guy who's untrained. Who's, who can't control his rage. He's the one who will lash out and hurts the women and children. It's just the opposite of what you think it would be.
0: Who would you put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? If you had to pick two, three, maybe four at the most martial artists that you'd put up there as uh, you know, whether they're just someone you personally know and have looked up to, or just like someone like a Bruce Lee who just had an impact on the generation, who are a couple people you'd put on your Mount Rushmore?
1: That's a, that's a tough one. <laughs>
0: I used to ask for just one, but no one could ever give just one. So I figured I'd change it up a little bit and ask for a, at least a couple. If you, you know, it doesn't have to be four like Mount Rushmore, but just a, a couple of martial artists who you just put up on a pedestal and you think are whether they just had an impact on the martial arts world in general, or you personally, or something like that.
1: Well, look, Bruce Lee had a profound impact on me. Bruce Tegner had an effect on me. I I can't really name it because I'm so eclectic in what I do mm-hmm. and. And I don't want to leave someone out. Right. That makes sense.
0: Well, that makes sense. I mean, you named two good ones already. And I'm sure I would imagine yeah. Tanaka's probably up there too for you. So
1: I could put up there a nine-year-old kid who once taught me something. Well, there you, you go. Know? He was a he was a Russian Jew, came over and he showed me a, a fighting trip that they used in Russia to survive. Nice. I'll never forget that. He was nine years old. I go, shoot, that was pretty brilliant. That's cool. So I'm not trying to be evasive in the question. No, I, just, no, I understand. It just, it's just you know, I,
0: it's not it's not an easy question. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm going to try no, it out no. with a few guests, and we'll see how it goes. I might end up taking it out in the future. But all right, how about this one then? In all your years of martial arts, is there a philosophy you've learned that maybe one really important one that you keep coming back to? You still teach yourself, and, and it's very important in your everyday
1: life. Yeah, I mean the, the, the philosophy is do unto others as you have them do unto you. It's a good one. Yeah, there was. Is- this is commentary it's real it's real simple and um but uh the main thing I think I try to teach people when they first and i talked about this in another radio show it would take it would take us a couple hours to go over it, but mm-hmm. is perspective always re- maintain your perspective
0: mm-hmm. That's
1: you know, cool. and be and, and, and know that other people have different perspectives than your own
0: okay all right, so the last few were some kind of fun ones, and you you can't pick something that you yourself have worked on or been involved in so First one is favorite martial arts book.
1: My favorite martial arts book for me, it's a toss up between Musashi's no show and Sun Tzu. Nice. Okay. Art War.
0: Two good ones. Nice. Okay, cool. All right. Favorite martial arts TV show.
1: Favorite martial arts TV show. Oh, Kung Fu. When nice. I was a kid growing up. Okay. So
0: I got to ask you, did you ever watch the early nineties sequel? Uh, the legend continues.
1: No, I I didn't, Okay, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) Most most people, I think I'm the only one who actually watched that show. (laughs) It's kind of funny, so, okay. And then, favorite martial arts movie?
1: My favorite martial arts movie?
0: Yep, that you
1: haven't been involved in. That that I'm not involved in. Yes. Because I would have to say Bloodsport. It's tough for me to pick my favorite martial arts movie, to be honest with you, because I was so influenced by so many. Yes. Uh, Billy Jack, I really loved. Great movie. I loved Billy Jack because of The Message enter the dragon of course
0: nice
1: and uh, blood on the sun
0: nice three good ones i I gotta watch that one i I wrote that one down i'm definitely gonna try to find that online later and watch it because that sounds like a really good one so okay cool and then for the final question this one it doesn't have to be a martial arts movie per se but is there a movie that you think has one of the best or your favorite martial arts fight scenes doesn't necessarily
1: let's work and i'll tell you why okay um, well, I'll t- actually, I'll tell you a couple. Like, I like to talk the fight scenes in Atomic Blonde. Ah, yes. Okay. I thought those, that, that you know, great, uh, great choreography. The Born Identity. Oh yeah, that's one uh, of my go The Born Identity.
0: That. Yep. Yeah. Well, with, the, the
1: first Born, J- the first Born film.
0: Yeah, with Matt Damon. What's it called? Yeah, that was uh-huh. Born Identity. Yeah, there's some great the fight Identity. scenes okay. in that. Yes. All right.
1: Yeah. So uh, I thought that was I liked that and. Uh, what is it? Atomic Blonde, Born Identity, Bloodsport. Oh, I was going to tell you about Bloodsport. They did, Showtime did a special where they actually took the actual footage of actual Kumite and they matched it up against my choreography. You can see it was all identical.
0: Really? Okay.
1: Yeah. That's kind of cool. that. yes. Yeah. And it's kind of weird. I always thought it was weird. Like people say, oh, Kumite doesn't exist yet. Here it was on Showtime. <laughs> all the evidence was right there. You know, it's like, where did that go? You know what I mean?
0: Oh yeah. So do you do you so, think I mean obviously Hollywood changes things, obviously. Every movie, any true story, they change things. Do you think they they'll ever do a, a movie about the Kumite that's one hundred percent realistic that shows it how it really was? Hollywood not gonna do something like that, probably.
1: The likelihood of them doing it is unlikely. Yeah. But anything's possible in this world. So True. People say we could never reach the moon and we, we landed in the moon. For well, those people will tell you we didn't.
0: that is true (laughs) faked on a soundstage in hollywood i'm like yeah okay whatever (laughs) well i will definitely i'll put links for whatever you want me to on our show notes i'll put you know links for your book um for your official website because i know you do like yeah don't you have like online training and stuff you offer and everything too
1: i i really retired but uh, go to frank yeah if you could put the link uh, frank uh, com. oh okay do that let me write that that's, one that's link share yeah. www.frankdukesbloodsport.com. okay cool i will put a link
0: to that one also and like i said any before this airs it'll be about a month before it airs so anything else that comes up before then you want me to put a link to or anything like that i will gladly put it out there but i just i i appreciate your time and i enjoyed hearing the story it's, it's been great you know chatting with you and once again thank you very much thank you Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artists. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartists.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artists, and we'll see you next week.